The effects of the coronavirus pandemic have been myriad. Lower economic activity, impacts on education, and then there's the health effects. We know the pandemic will pass, and when it does, like an ill patient, we'll all be working at the recovery. But if it doesn't include half of the population, how can we expect to fully recover? I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. The differential between men and women's uh, obligations at home related to childcare is astounding. McMaster University researchers surveyed thousands of working and stay-at-home parents in April and June. This was the childcare breakdown pre-pandemic. Men reported an average of 33 hours per week, women 68 hours. When stay-home measures came in, fathers reported an average of 46 hours a week, while mothers clocked 95. Despite having uh, oftentimes two people with full-time, full-time careers or full-time jobs women are still taking on uh, the lion's share of the burden when it comes to childcare responsibilities. And this was only amplified when other supports were taken away. When you think about it from an equity standpoint, it's striking to hear those numbers. Women are having to do more work around the home during the pandemic. Yes, but how has the pandemic affected other groups of women? To answer that, let's bring in Andrea. Andrea Gunraj is the VP of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation and joins us. Thanks for your time, Andrea. Oh, thanks for having me. Before we get into this line of questions, uh, tell us a little bit about the Women's Foundation and the work you do. Well, the Canadian Women's Foundation, we are Canada's public foundation for gender equality. And the long and the short of it is that we do everything we can to move women out of poverty and out of violence and into confidence and leadership. And of course, that really a big part of that is funding organizations doing great work on the grassroots level in every province and territory in Canada. That's really our big concern. But of course, we want to move the needle in a bigger way and make sure that there's systemic changes that build gender equality. We've been in this pandemic for about eight months now. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what the foundation has found about the effects of the pandemic on women and by extension, gender equality across Canada. Um, You know, we really have seen um, some movements in a negative direction. I'll just be frank with you. And for me, it's, it's so heartbreaking because we have made great progress over the last three decades, I'd say, on gender equality measures things like uh, economics, things like uh, safety and violence, and people's leadership and people's ability to move into new opportunities. And those things are really at risk right now. And I think it's really important for us to see it in the lens of the pandemic not creating the problems, but showing where the cracks exist and showing where, though we have made progress, there are still things that are key that we haven't made progress on or not enough progress. And also the fact that gains that we have made sometimes have been tenuous because they haven't been deep enough. So it's a real lesson for us, I think, for us to look at how shocks, these kinds of big shocks that happen to us when we don't do things as deeply as we can and as as widely as we can, these things really shake us. And you see it from the most vulnerable communities. That's where you see the the changes that need to happen. And women, of course, they they face very special vulnerabilities. Um, I think particularly about the economic impact. That's what's really top of mind for a lot of people. They're talking about how the gender equality uh, factors have played out in the pandemic and how the pandemic 
pandemic has been a gendered reality. And what we've seen over the last three decades is that um, women have made gains in economics, but now that's all at risk. We have women at the lowest point in the paid labor market um, that they've been in the last 30 years. And I think it's really a, a big part of this, of course, has to do with childcare. There are a lot of unpaid child care needs uh, that women cover in our society. Women do this work, um, and it's not particularly supported uh, as it should be by the government. So now the unpaid work gets really uh, in the way of paid hours. And what that means is that women often are making the choice between paid and unpaid work. They have to do the unpaid work. And so the paid hours get harmed. There's only a certain amount of hours in the day. Um, so that's one thing. But I think there's a deeper reality going on that women, especially marginalized women, have been in underpaid work, precarious work, and work that really is not supported in the full way that it could be supported. So we've been seeing that women are talking about how they cannot go back to work, how they lost their jobs, and they did not gain the jobs back the way that other groups gained the jobs back. We saw that big dip, and then everybody was affected, and then who got the jobs? It wasn't women getting their jobs back. So I think this is just a longer discussion around women's precarity of work and the fact that women are not necessarily supported to do paid work because they're so busy doing unpaid work. So there is this notion out there of, of a K-shaped recovery where one where, uh, you know, a particular sector of society will do very well and another very poorly. It almost sounds like you, you, you're you alluding to to the fact that uh, that that part of this K-shaped recovery, part of that that split will be by gender, by, by, between men and women. Absolutely. Um, that's such a good way of looking at it. It's really this idea that, that, well, people have talked about it, a she-covery, right? And it's a, it's a gendered pandemic. The idea that uh, the, when you see these things happening across the board, everybody's affected. People are affected in different ways. And I'd also say that, of course, we're seeing that women are not one big unilateral group, that you have women who are in low-income mm-hmm. situations getting hit even harder. Women who are marginalized because of racism and because of, um, you know, low pay jobs, they're going to be hit even harder. Women who are newcomers are going to be hit harder. So we also have to remember that there's those big kind of shifts that happen that are different for different groups of women and different for also girls. So saying that, Andrea, it's with all the different groups of women that are out there, uh, how and and what can be done to reduce the disparity between all those groups when you're you're trying to tackle it as you know not one group and in really trying to tackle it as a, a bunch of different groups well one of the things that I think the Canadian women's Foundation is not unique in saying a lot of advocates and organizations have been saying we need a gender lens on recovery plans and we need to have an intersectional lens so people talk about a gender-based analysis with an intersectional lens So that intersectional lens to me is key. It's looking at how, yes, women are different and experience things very differently and that you have to come up with plans that have those nuances and keep those things in mind. And most importantly, prioritize the women who are most vulnerable. If our plans prioritize those groups, put them in a place of strength, everybody gets into a place of strength. It's really a high needs first approach. 
And I think that's a really strong approach in lots of different ways. I look at public health, for instance. Public health has for years talked about having a high-needs approach, having this idea of risk reduction, harm reduction. I think that same mentality has to be placed to a gendered recovery. Look at who's affected most, how they can be brought up highest and best, and everybody else benefits really well. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is domestic abuse and the stories of increased domestic abuse during the pandemic. What we've been hearing people say, it's a pandemic within the pandemic. We've already had pandemic rates of violence. Um, We know in Canada on average, and this was before the pandemic, a woman was killed by her intimate partner every six days. Um, So huge. And then you have this dynamic of greater stressors coming into families and into uh, relationships. And we know that just because there's greater stressors doesn't mean that people have to use violence. It is not inevitable. Not all of us are going into that place of harming one another. But when there's already existing baseline um, risk factors of that gender-based violence, that's things like sexual assault, things like partner abuse at home, um, that stressors will increase that. We have this dynamic that plays out whenever there's a disaster, pandemics, sometimes natural disasters. We've seen it around the world. We've seen it in Canada as well, too. And so what we have is this dynamic where people might be at greater risk of this violence happening at home. And of course, it's behind closed doors. And because they're socially isolated, um, already isolated in a violent situation, that tends to be the, the dynamic. But now that they have to be isolated because of pandemic concerns, that they may not have the ability to reach out to other people. And when risk factors happen or when those moments of violence happen, people are not there to be able to intervene. So it's kind of a perfect storm of a lot of things happening behind closed doors where people are not able to get the supports that they need. And of course, those supports are really struggling right now. Andrea, if there are women out there who are listening to this and find themselves in a situation in which they may be facing domestic violence of any sort, what should they be doing during this pandemic in a time when we're being told to stay home by public health officers? Of course, we have to do our part and we have to take care of ourselves when it comes to the virus. But we also have to be safe in our homes. So I would first of all say, um, I'm sorry you're going through this. And I'm also going to encourage people that they can still call their local shelter and a crisis line. Those are still open and operating. One of the disturbing things that we're hearing is that sometimes people use, like abusers will tell their the person they're abusing, oh, the crisis line is not open, so don't even think about calling that. Oh, the shelters are not open, so you can't go anywhere. That is not true. They're still operating. They might look different, but they're still operating and they're still there to support you. And even if you're not able to leave a violent situation, you can still call. You can still get uh, support. You can still perhaps access counseling supports online and through your phone. They can find a way to create a safety plan with you so that at least there are steps that you can take, even if you're not going to be able to leave a violent situation. And I would also say as well, too, that those of us who have friends and family, Um, I think every single one of us knows somebody in our lives who we worry are not safe right now. So I would encourage us all to take that step to call those folks, reach out to those folks and say, hey, I am concerned about you. Remember that I am here. You can reach me at any time. I will be there for you. That alone, every person in Canada can do to support somebody at this really tough time. This pandemic has laid bare the inequities in society and where social supports are stretched thin, especially when it comes to women and girls across Canada.
when the pandemic first hit, we noticed immediately there was an increase in domestic violence. Our shelters um, were getting calls and the calls went up anywhere between 20 to 40 percent. We were also getting increased reports of women, for example, as many of us losing their jobs, having their hours cut back. But now as we're going into month seven, the other piece that we're seeing is that a lot of women are deciding that they actually can't go back into the workforce because they don't have access to childcare. So without childcare, we actually can't restart the economy. That's Maya Roy, CEO of the YWCA Canada, and we connected with her via Zoom. Maya, your organization recently released an economic recovery plan that is based in feminism. I'm wondering if you can tell us about what that plan involves. There's there's eight key pillars, um, and I won't bore you with all eight, but what we did is is we spoke with people across the country and we spoke with frontline staff and childcare was one of the big pieces that they talked about. Um, they also talked about anti-racism. So hate crimes actually have increased with the pandemic. It, hate crimes were increasing even before the pandemic, but for example, in Vancouver, reported hate crimes went up by 600% targeting Asian community members. So it was really important for us to actually start talking about solutions and looking at different ways that organizations like YWCA, government, private sector can actually come together and find some solutions. Maya, tell us more about intersectionality and how it plays into a post-pandemic recovery. Intersectionality, it sounds like a major $10 word, but really it's just about mapping power. And it's about understanding how power plays a role in our lives day to day. So for example, for myself as a woman of color, I might experience a different set of barriers for a woman living with a disability. Um, We also saw geographically, you know, where you are in Canada, a lot of women said to us that because of public transportation being shut down, that they actually couldn't get to work. They couldn't get to daycare. And they were looking at actually leaving the workforce permanently. And unfortunately, what we were hearing early on is now turning out to be true. The Royal Bank of Canada and Scotiabank actually each independently released a report saying that women's labor market participation has actually returned to the 1980s because of COVID. And unfortunately, when employers can't have they're really important needed workers actually running businesses. That's also something that's slowing down the economy and slowing down the restart. So the pandemic is really showing us what was already broken in our society before, but COVID is just bringing some of these pieces to the surface. And that's why we thought it was important to have that intersectionality lens. Maya, we know that women are underrepresented in government at all levels. Knowing that, how do we ensure that women are fully represented in a recovery plan? Well, one of the things just in terms of the short term that we're looking for and asking and sort of partnering with other women's organizations and anti-racism organizations is actually to create an economic recovery council to actually have community members from the north, from the west, um, but also, for example, people who understand um, it's going to be very important to have lived experience of people living with disabilities because we also know COVID, for example, um, really impacts your health and the long term and we still don't have a sense of what that means for 
for um, Canadians who have lived with the disease and also to, you know, to, to address the stigma. Um, the, so that's the short-term strategy if we can have a very representative council of, of Canadians who are advising. But in the long term, I think a lot of the leadership programs, a lot of the mentoring programs, whether it's Big Brothers or Big Sisters or the Y, um, anything done by a local Indigenous Friendship Centre, that's really where, you know, there's some amazing emerging leaders and they have ideas and they're doing work in their communities and they're actually talking about solutions today. So what we're trying to do at the Y is actually tap into their skills and to see how we can bring their voices to Ottawa. Well, speaking of Ottawa, I I'm wondering how governments of various orders have received your plan, if it's Ottawa or if it's Toronto or if it's, uh, you know, Vancouver or even smaller municipalities. What's what's the reception been like? Yeah, the reception has been really welcoming. I mean, like everybody else working from home remotely, um, when my colleague Anjum first came up with this idea, it was just, you know, both of us st- staring at each other on Zoom, talking into the void. And the government of Hawaii, um, women there put together a really amazing plan that came out first. And we were interested in talking about something for Canada. So we've had... Um, um, a lot of policymakers in Ottawa reach out, but also municipalities as well. Uh, people from the city of Vancouver, uh, former city councillors um, from Toronto who are really interested in talking about, you know, how can we work together around solutions? The other thing we've really noticed is this is one of the few times where labor, business, government, women's organizations, we all agree about childcare, um, and that if we invest in childcare, that it's something that would benefit everybody. So that's been really interesting to see. So what are the next steps as far as this feminist recovery plan uh, that, that you see happening? Mm-hmm. Well, like everything, um, the devil is in the details. And, <laughs> you know, we, we've sort of identified what women and gender diverse service users and staff were telling us. Now it's about talking to people with power, talking to people with with resources and actually getting a sense of how we can actually implement some of these solutions. So whether that's creating a national plan around addressing gender violence or actually creating a universal affordable childcare system so that parents over the next two, three years don't have to do this band-aid patchwork system. You know, all working parents are just really, really frustrated right now. Um, And we also know, you know, unfortunately, even if a vaccine comes out next year, as my colleagues in, in the HIV sector keep reminding me, um, a vaccine isn't necessarily a magic bullet. So mm-hmm. some of these solutions we are going to need, you know, for the short term and for the midterm for the next two to three years, because I think if there's one thing we're all in agreement on, we can't live in lockdown and quarantine forever. Um, it's, it's simply too much uh, for our mental health, for our communities, for our economy. So, you know, what are, what are some clear, concrete steps we can take in the meantime um, while we, you know, while Team Canada fights this, fights this virus? This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend.
Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, stay safe, and wear a mask. We'll see you soon.